What is the state of voting rights in America? What did the ACLU's lawsuit against Chris Kobach over the state of Kansas's Show Us Your Papers citizenship voting law teach us about the extent of the voter fraud problem? What's at stake in the litigation over the citizenship question, which may appear on the 2020 census? On Season 2, Episode 1 of the ALB Podcast, we talk with Dale Ho, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, who supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation and advocacy work nationwide. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ALB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. After a long hiatus, the ALB Podcast is back in time for the midterm election season with a great first guest. I'm joined today by Dale Ho, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. He supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation and its advocacy work nationwide. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dale. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So I thought I'd start with a very broad question and then get into some of the specifics about some of the important cases you've been working on in the area of voting rights. Uh, and the broad question is this, how would you assess the state of voting rights in America today? Uh, I would... Uh assess it as unsettled and contested. Um, and maybe that's been true for um, most of American history, but I think particularly so um, over the last five to 10 years, at least in comparison to the previous 20 or 30. I mean, there've always been controversies about voting rights, but um, you know, going back 10 or 20 years, I'd say most of those were in the redistricting context and specifically in the context of the role of race and redistricting, the proper level of considering race when trying to draw districts that uh, afford minority voters an opportunity to elect their candidates of choice. And today, I'd say those controversies are alive and well, but they've been joined by a big range of controversies over partisan gerrymandering and over um, access to the ballot itself. Um, and that in particular is where I've been focusing my work over the past eight years or so. Well, so when you took this job, it was before Trump was elected president. Um, do you 2000 think years that, ago, right? Yeah. Well, that marks a turning point. <laughs> but you trace these issues. I mean, certainly they predated Trump. You know, oh, how, yeah. How would you kind of describe the, say, if we're talking about the period from, say, 2000 till the Trump election compared mm -hmm. to post-Trump. I mean, the, can, can we divide the world that way? Well, I, I guess what I'd say, I, the, the, the big turning point for issues of access to registration, access to um, polling, uh, to, to, to the voting booth, um, which, I've, which we sometimes call voter suppression and which is the bulk of the work that I do. I'd say this work really started heating up in 2011 and 12 in the run up to the 2012 presidential election. You know, the Brennan Center did a report around that time where they purported to find that 19 states had passed 25 new laws that made it harder for people either to register to vote or to cast a ballot. And that was a really big sea change, I think, from the period 1995 to about 2010. For the most part, registering to vote, voting were um, both getting easier in this country. And then suddenly this, it seemed like um, sea change um, where the um, direction, the directional arrow, at least um, seemed to go um, in, 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 in another way. And 
I think it's hard to understand that massive change without looking at the 2008 election and the changing composition of the presidential electorate um, in that election as compared to 2004. Huge increases in turnout by voters of color um, who comprised a quarter of the eligible electorate for the first time in our nation's history. Um, Higher levels of turnout amongst people under the age of 30 than we had seen since um, 1992. And that's really the diverse coalition that carried Barack Obama to victory as our nation's first black president. And it's only when that happens do we suddenly see this massive pushback on access to registration and voting, Um, this notion that it's too easy to vote, this idea that um, voter fraud is rampant, which I know was being talked about in the 2000s by people like Hans von Spakovsky um, and to a lesser extent during that period, Chris Kobach. But those I, th- th- those those voices suddenly I thought I think became much louder and echoed um, um, with much um, um, more wide-reaching reverberations um, um, after the 2008 election, and 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 we've been fighting those battles ever since. And uh, this leads me to the question, um, and back to I think thinking about the the Trump election 2016. Is this mostly about race? Is this about party? Can I make that separation uh, when we're having this discussion? I guess written a little bit about. I I guess I would say that um, it's it's a little hard to, from my perspective anyway, that it's a little hard to disentangle those um, ideas um, as if you know contestation along racial lines is this sort of pure. There's a there's some sort of pure form in which that exists. Um, as distinct from contestation along partisan lines. Um, the the overlap is complicated and it has shifted generationally, obviously. Um, but it, it's hard to see what's happened um, since 2011, 12 or, or so um, running through the Trump election. Um, when you kind of understand the history of voting in this country and how voting is really polarized in a lot of um, parts of the country along racial lines that line up um, very neatly along partisan ones. Um, and to, it, it's hard to see all that and to think that you can understand this era as purely one of partisan polarization, I would say. Maybe I'm setting up a straw man there. Um, um, you know, maybe no one would, would, would take such a sort of extreme view about um, the non-role of race um, in, in politics today. But I, I just feel like the question sometimes, um, as it's asked, not by you, but um, by others, sometimes presupposes that you can make that distinction. And I just think it's not possible. Well, let me ask you, you know, we, we do see this play out certainly uh, on a national scale where it's typically Republican states that are making it harder to uh, register and to vote. Um, let me ask you about New York uh, State, which is uh, place where there have been a tremendous amount of problems where, where the lines don't exactly look that way. What's, what's your assessment of the state of voting rights in New York right now? As <laughs> opposed to talking about North Carolina or Kansas or you know, places that are nationally in the news about these things. No, sure. I mean, New York has a very anti-registration um, and, excuse me, voting system. We have a registration cutoff that's three weeks before the election, which is premised on um, the now outdated notion that you need all those three weeks in order to 
process and verify voter registration applications. You don't really need that now that you have statewide electronic voter registration um, lists. Um, online registration is at best incomplete. Um, in um, New York, there is um, um, some online accessibility, but it's not universally um, accessible. Uh, we don't have early voting. We don't have no excuse absentee voting. Um, and those limitations are also artifacts, I think, of an older um, um, way of doing things that doesn't really that don't really make sense in 2018. And you know um, that inertia, I think, is the product of uh, 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 a political class here that is content with how elections um, come out. You know, I mean, there's a temptation amongst elected officials to um, leave systems in place even when they don't inure to the benefit of the voters because, you know, after all the systems are working fine, they elected me, right? How could you possibly have a better system? Um, and that inertia, I think, does sometimes cut across um, partisan lines, and we see that here in New York. I would distinguish, though, I think, the fact that New York's ever, the fact that New York's never adopted early voting from, say, efforts to curtail early voting in places like North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio that we've seen in recent years. I mean, those efforts have come after years of experience with early voting and data that's revealed, at least in more recent elections, dating back about 10 years or so, that early voting is, at least at present, used more frequently by black voters, by young voters, as compared to you know what the electorate the election day um, electorate looks like, and then a concerted effort by politicians who um, are targeting those voters to try to cut back precisely on their on, on their on their um, exact means um, that they're using to um, participate. That's a little bit different, I'd say, than the sort of ordinary venal political interests that elected officials might have in New York, um, not to tinker with the existing system. It's not, um, I don't think, necessarily targeted at a particular group, which um, makes it a little bit different. Um, but I guess to the average voter who opportunity to vote on election, uh, to, to vote um, before, whether by mail or um, in person in New York, it really a little of little comfort. Well, let's turn to a couple of uh, specific cases. And the two that I wanted to spend a little time talking about were the Kansas uh, case uh, mm -hmm. and also the, uh, the census case. I think these are yeah. two that uh, are very different, uh, but um, uh, connected in the sense that uh, it, it's concerned with the question of non-citizens voting. And so I thought, hey, could you just spend a few minutes walking us through what the Kansas case was about and what we might be able to learn from all of that. Yeah, sure. The Kansas case um, is about a law that was enacted in 2011 um, and became effective in 2013 that was championed by uh, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach to require um, voter registration applicants to submit a uh, citizenship document at the time that they registered to vote, like a passport, birth certificate, naturalization certificate. Um, Kansas is really unique um, in that it's the only state at present um, that requires a physical document. There are three states that have similar laws. Um, two of them, Georgia and Alabama, are not enforcing those laws. Arizona has a law like it, but you can satisfy Arizona's law simply by writing your driver's license number on your voter registration application form. Kansas is the only state where you actually have to submit in some form a copy of an actual 
document. And um, the law um, was, frankly, an, uh, an unmitigated disaster. Um, within a few months, thousands of voter registration applications were um, rejected in the state. Uh, there were indications that the law was being implemented in an arbitrary and inconsistent way where um, sometimes people who actually showed their documents, um, like uh, showed their birth certificates, still ended up having their registrations blocked. Um, by three years after the law had been effect in early 2016, about 35,000 voter registration applications in all had been rejected. That constituted about one out of seven applications um, in the state, and it was disproportionately young people. Um, about 40% of the rejected applications were from people under the age of 30. And um, that makes sense. Um, the law only applied to new registrants who are disproportionately young folks. Older folks tend to be um, updating or changing their registrations um, a little more frequently and less frequently um, submitting new registration applications. And uh, young people also frequently don't have their documents with them. They move around more frequently and sometimes they leave their documents, um, say, with their parents. For example, if you're a student who's um, away at college. Um, so the law was a disaster. Um, Kobach, the entire time he was propounding this law, said that he needed it in order to stop non-citizens um, registering to vote. And the case um, put that notion on trial. Um, in the posture of the case, which I won't um, get into too much detail on, um, it was Secretary Kobach's burden to show that he needed this law, that there was a justification for it, um, um, namely that Kansas had a big problem of non-citizen registration. And after years of discovery, he came up with a grand total of 38 non-citizens who had registered to vote, dating back over 20 years, so fewer than two who registered per year, five of them um, ever cast a ballot. Um, and out of, that, out of how many ballots are we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about, uh, gosh, I, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but you know, 1.8 million registered voters in the state of Kansas. So you're talking about 38 um, um, unlawful registrants um, whose, whose, whose application forms revealed in many cases that they were registered by mistake. Sometimes they indicated that they were not citizens, but um, state workers registered them anyway. Sometimes they learned that they were registered to vote and asked to be taken off of the rolls. Um, I wish I could remember the sheer number of ballots that were cast during that time period. I, I, I just don't have it at the top of my head. But as you can imagine, five votes over, I mean, five people voting over um, a 20-year period, it's a, it's, it's a pretty minuscule fraction of the um, actual ballots cast. And that was the basis on which he wanted to stop over 35,000 voter registration applications. Um, um, so I think what we learned from that case is that these repeated assertions that there are, you know, uh, untold numbers of non-citizens registering in our elections and um, participating, they, they're just not borne out by any actual evidence. Yeah, well, there was the discussion about it being the tip of the iceberg. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the that was the amazing thing is that, you know, he kept saying he's been saying for years, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg. You know, he referenced at one point um, when he was secretary as secretary of state, a press release uh, where they found some non-citizens registered to vote in Wichita. Um, um, Sedgwick County and his press release identifying these people came out and he, he called these people um, the tip of the iceberg, right? And his expert witness, Hans von Spakovsky, who has a long um, history um, uh, 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 spreading lies about voter fraud, um, used the exact same phrase, tip of the iceberg, to describe the exact same incident in Sedgwick County, um, Wichita. Um, it, it just 
you know, it's it just seems like it's a con- continual recitation of a talking point. But ultimately, there was no iceberg there. There was. I, an, I think you were quoted saying it was an ice cube. Or <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Then the the judge in the case, Judge Julie Robinson, a George W. Bush appointee, said that the best inference that she could draw based on the evidence in front of her that it there, there was only an icicle. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, snow cone. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> As someone who's been battling the, the von Spakovskys of the world for uh, some time, uh, uh, I found uh, this quite uh, cathartic. <laughs> finally, the claims had been literally put on trial and had been found to be wanting. And this was the time to put forward the evidence. And uh, uh, you know, uh, even late in the case, I saw that uh, they were trying to come up with new evidence and, uh, and and not actually following the rules of evidence along the way. Uh, were you surprised at how poorly the case was litigated? Was that what you were uh, I, expecting? I'm, I'm, I'm usually reluctant to sort of criticize the um, skills of my um, adversaries in litigation. I, I mean, I just think that the record kind of spoke for itself as performance. Um, inspired the judge to, um, at, you know, in her um, final judgment in the case, order him to take six hours of continuing legal education, which, you know, I've never seen happen before. But to your point about Hans von Spakovsky, and this is true for Chris Kobach, too. I mean, these are people who for years have been going on Fox News, testifying in Congress that we have this big problem of citizen registration, and they, they're, they're never really to the test. They can get away with, you know, unsubstantiated assertions in you when they're in these kind of quick hit situations and their 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 evidence isn't subject to adversarial testing the way that it is in court and i think what was great about this case in terms of public education on these issues um is that the burden of proof on these voter fraud issues was on the other side for once. Usually when we litigate these voter suppression cases, we say, hey, look, there's no evidence of voter fraud in this state. You don't need this new restriction on voting. But of course, it's very difficult to prove a negative. Um, Here, it was their opportunity to prove a positive, that there is a problem of non-citizen registration. And if it really is a big problem, as they've been saying for years, it really shouldn't be that hard with years of time. And all of the tools of investigation that the government has, including, you know, the powers of criminal investigation and prosecution, which Secretary Kobach has in the state of Kansas, and they couldn't come up with anything. And I, I, I hope that that's educational for them. I've noticed that Hans von Spakovsky is not writing or tweeting much about voter fraud um, since that trial. And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, I, I, we'll, we'll see. But sometimes I think that these folks are kind of like those inflatable dummies that kids hit sometimes. You, you punch them and they just kind of go down and they just bounce right back up. I mean, I heard Kobach saying the other day, or I read that him being quoted in Breitbart, that there are 33,000 non-citizens registered to vote in Kansas, which was a claim that his own expert um, disclaimed at trial. So I, I, I just, sometimes I just don't know what to say about all of this. Well, you could think about it next time you're in line for groceries at the grocery store and you have to ID in order to yeah. buy a carton of milk. Yeah. We, we don't know how many people are buying milk unlawfully, Rick. Yes. We'll, we'll never know that, that yes. answer, which is why we should ID people buying milk. It's the tip of the ice cream. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
so uh, before I let you go, I do want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about this census case, because it seems to me that this is uh, among the most important pieces of uh, litigation out there right now. Can yeah. Can you situate that for us and tell us what the status is? Yeah, sure. And uh, is it helpful to give background on the case? I, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, just, yeah, just a little bit. Sure. Um, this is a challenge to um, that we're litigating in New York, and there are parallel cases um, by other um, groups and government entities in California and in Maryland, um, challenging the addition of a citizenship question in the census. The concern is that question is going to be quite intimidating um, for people, particularly in, particularly in this climate. Um, you're talking about essentially a federal door-to-door -door inquiry of the citizenship status of every member of every household in America. Um, and um, the concern is that fewer people are going to respond to the census as a result of the presence of that question. And because the census is the basis on which we allocate federal resources, a portion not just in Congress, but also for state houses, that it's uh, going to have a pretty devastating, particularly in immigrant communities and communities of color. The census is supposed to count everyone um, that's in the Constitution, not just some people, but everyone. Um, whether you're an adult or a child, a citizen or a non-citizen, a voter or not a voter, and um, um, you know, so, so so we've challenged it. And these cases are ongoing. Um, um, the New York case is likely to go to trial in November. We're in the middle of a bunch of um, fights with the federal government over documents. Um, they originally produced um, very few documents um, about the decision-making process, um, but the first batch of documents that they produced um, unearthed, I think, uh, essentially um, that was at the heart of this case um, that was by the administration and which had been repeated by the Secretary of Commerce um, in congressional testimony. Um, the story from the administration has been from the beginning that they need citizenship information um, down to the block level on a block-by-block -block basis. They need to know how many citizens um, are residing um, um, everywhere because they need that information for purposes of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. And Commerce Secretary Wilbur, um, the Commerce Department runs the Census Bureau, um, uh, testified in Congress that he started looking at this issue when he got a request from the Department of Justice in December of 2017 um, to, uh, to, get this in, to, to get this information for um, justice um, for purposes of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. And what the first batch of documents we got from the government revealed was that as early as May 2017, so seven months before the Department of Justice ever made a formal request on this issue, um, Secretary Ross was already agitated, um, demanding to know why a citizenship question hadn't already been added to the census. And one of his subordinates responded, don't worry, we'll get that in place. We just have to get the Department of Justice to ask us to do it. So the fix was in from the beginning. Um, this idea that the DOJ needs this and that's the genesis of this pretty clearly seems to be a lie. And um, it looks like there are other reasons. Uh, what do you think the actual reasons are? Or is that not yet revealed in the uh, email correspondence? Well, time? some of the emails that we've seen, you know, indicate a frustration with Trump administration officials that non-citizens are counted for purposes of allocating political power in the country. And so I think um, what that suggests is that the Trump administration was all too happy to take a step that would reduce census participation in those communities because it would mean less representation for those communities, but also um, 
Um, second, to create a source of data that would enable states and counties to draw their district lines on the basis of something other than um, total number of people in every district, um, perhaps total number of citizens or citizens of voting age. So it's kind of like a double whammy. You reduce the number of non-citizens who are counted, and then um, potentially the ones who are counted, you just ignore them entirely um, in the redistricting process. Um, that seems to be the uh, game plan here. And regardless of whether or not you think that's a, an okay game plan, or you you agree with that as a as a sort of substantive matter, as the you know notion that, that that's the uh, a notion of what our government should look like and um, what what representation should look like, the fact that the administration concealed that game plan and concocted another one, that's really not how. Uh, accountable government is supposed to work in this country. It's really not how administrative decisions are supposed to be made. Um, and I think that, that lie at the heart of all of this is the real scandal here. Well, let me just ask you finally before we go, I get asked all the time uh, what people can do to promote voting rights in their communities. <laughs> I thought you'd be a good person to ask that question to because you're much closer to what's going on on the ground than I am. What's your advice? <laughs> I mean, it's tough. Um, you know, these laws are made um, frequently by state legislatures or um, um, county um, officials who um, we have uh, limited means of influencing. It's it's difficult to get legal reform um, um, through direct action. Um, the ACLU is trying to do more work in this area. Um, each one of our state affiliates has a different goal for one legal reform for that state. Um, and uh, if you go to our website, um, People Power, and um, we have this uh, uh, new program called People Power um, that tries to mobilize ACLU members around particular policy goals, you can learn about what specific action that we're promoting in your state. Um, in particular, there are two states where we're working on ballot initiatives, um, Michigan, uh, an initiative to uh, modernize the election system there, to um, create opportunities for early voting, same-day registration, auto registration, um, things that are proven to increase participation. Um, that's likely to qualify for the ballot, and we need people to volunteer to help us canvas for that and make sure that that initiative passes. And then in Florida, um, same things for a different initiative that seeks to restore voting rights to people criminal convictions. Florida is one of the worst states in the country in this regard. Uh, it's one of just three states where currently if you commit a single felony offense, you can't vote for the rest of your life. Um, it's 1.6 million people in the state of Florida alone, which is pretty remarkable. That's bigger than a lot of our states. Um, um, and it's uh, uh, more than 25% of the adult black population in the state. So um, that's another um, thing in which we're looking for volunteers to participate in. Uh, uh, and then there are lots of opportunities outside of those states for people to get involved with civic groups like the League of Women Voters, like Rock the Vote, um, to help uh, uh, engage in voter registration drives and increase civic participation work. Because at the end of the day, the, the laws structure our elections, but it's up to folks themselves selves uh, to, to, to get engaged and involved. Um, um, the laws and the courts can only take us so far. Well, I know you've got a very 
big busy docket and i appreciate you taking the time to come onto the podcast <laughs> thanks so much it was my pleasure rick thank you the ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FM, used under a Creative Commons license. Please join us next time for the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hansen. Goodbye.